Welcome to The Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Paul Geelan. Let's just bow our heads before we open the Word of God and, um, and, and have the Spirit speak. Dear Father in Heaven, we do pause uh, to consecrate our hearts and our lives to you. Lord, we pray that you can use this very um, inefficient and um, challenging instrument in your hands today in the presentation of your word. May the Spirit of God be very present and working on each heart is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought that if you wanted to tell somebody who didn't know anything about what the Bible is about... And you wanted to share with them in about maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, the whole content of the Bible, not really brushing over anything, really wanting to hit all of the high points and explain to them what this book is all about. How would you go? Half an hour, 40 minutes, explain the entire contents of the Bible, highlighting the key important points. I set myself that challenge at the start of last year and the product of that was with this sermon. You can tell me how I go at the end. You know, when you're telling a story, often it starts with in the beginning or once upon a time. But of course, when it comes to the Bible, there's not really a beginning, although the first words are in the beginning. Um, so the challenge is how do you start a story like that? If you think, I like to think of it this way. If you had like a spool of cotton, for example, sometimes a visual, visual image is helpful. You've got a spool of cotton that goes sort of infinitely that way and another spool of cotton that goes infinitely that way and then in the middle of those two spools of cotton extending infinitely both ways, you get the two ends and you tie them together in a little knot that what's described in this book is what happens in that little knot where there's the history of this planet and God's design for it and his rescue mission after it became a renegade planet. Ironically, to start the story, you don't go to the first book of the Bible. Um, you go to the last book, and so I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 because that takes us to a time prior to the existence of planet Earth. Revelation chapter 12 and I'm looking at verse 7. The uh, Spirit of Prophecy Council suggests that the reason that this happened, what happens here in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, is because there were councils in heaven regarding the creation of planet Earth. And that one person who thought he should be part of those councils was left out. And the Bible says in Revelation 12 verse 7 that there were, that war broke out in the most unlikely place. It's called heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the, dra with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. I guess we, uh, from that verse alone, get a sense that there is a heaven and that in this first introduction, if you like, to the concept of heaven, there is an aspect of heaven that we don't expect. It's the fact that heaven is divided. 
there is conflict that's taking place in heaven between two of the great um, forces in the universe, if you like, Michael and his angels, or Jesus. We won't take the time to look at the biblical derivation of the fact that Michael is Jesus, but Jesus and his angels are fighting against Satan and his angels. We only have to drop down a couple of verses to find out the identity of the dragon. Revelation 12 verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that old that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. The identity is very, very clear. So there is a war in heaven between Jesus and his angels and Satan and his angels. It's a war of ideas. It's a war of ideologies, if you like. It's not so much a physical battle fought with um, swords or fists or weapons, but an ideological war. And the war is between an ideology of love that is the characteristic of God. Of course, it says in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. That's the governance system, if you like, that God always intended for the operation of the universe. That everything that was to happen in the universe and in the planet that it is just about to create was to be built on the concept of love. The Bible then talks about the mystery of iniquity. Why it was that Satan became proud. Why it was that he had the first thought of selfishness. The Bible describes as a mystery. But he did have it. And so the war began between a God of love and this first concept entering the universe of selfishness. A concept of uh, service to others versus a concept of service to self. And so Satan goes around insinuating to the angels that maybe the motives of God aren't pure. That maybe there is something... And he was probably very, very subtle about this. He Maybe he came up to the angels and he just said, look, I've got some concerns. You know, I probably shouldn't... No, nah, look, it's probably nothing. I probably shouldn't even worry about it. Don't worry. Walks away. What would you think if somebody said that to you? Well... Come on, you've got to share. What's concerning you? And of course, disaffection was spread around heaven and the war intensified. We can go into a whole lot more detail, but what it says there is that the, the, who prevailed in that war in the very next verse was it says that the, uh, the dragon and his angels did not prevail, nor was place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast onto the earth. And so now we see that there is a division between heaven and earth. Not only has there been a division in heaven, but there now is the existence of heaven and earth. And Satan is cast out down to earth with his angels. And so now we get this um, idea of what's in existence when earth has been created. Then we can go back to Genesis chapter 1 and pick up the story at that point. Genesis chapter 1, of course, we have the, um, the creation story. We, I guess, are backtracking a little bit um, in order to get that detail. And we have very, very clearly, I guess if you're trying to explain some of the contents of the Bible, obviously the six literal day creation of planet Earth is a very, very important concept. There it is right in chapter 1. We then, of course, have the creation of the first two... Um, sorry, the first two uh, human beings in the creation of Adam and Eve. 
the end of chapter 1 and then into chapter 2. We have the introduction of marriage and then, of course, in chapter 3 we have the fall. In fact, we have the introduction of those two great institutions, the institution of marriage and the institution of the Sabbath. Tragically, of course, um, we have then in chapter 3 the temptation and the fall of man. And so obviously at the initial creation and during those early periods when God would come down each day and walk with them in the cool of the day and commune with them face to face, it was a beautiful experience. There was the God of the universe and there was the first created beings in perfect harmony. Perfect beings in a perfect environment, in perfect harmony, working and walking together. Unfortunately, uh, as we know the story all too well, the serpent beguiled the man and the woman and they sinned. So while their allegiance was first of all to Jesus and the angels, while their allegiance was first of all to the principles of love, Having accepted the temptation of Satan, their allegiance is perverted, if you like, and they come across to um, give their allegiance to Satan and his angels and, I guess, the the principle of self-protection and self-love. You'll notice the impact on their relationship instantly. Instantly, there is distrust. Instantly, that perfect harmony that existed between them has been broken. Instantly, there is blaming because they have now aligned themselves to a different principle of governance, the principle of self-preservation and self-love rather than love for others. There is a prophecy given in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, which is important for us to pick up on as it continues a thread that runs throughout Scripture. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As soon as there was sin, there was the promise of a saviour. And uh, this is God talking to the serpent and he says, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put, there's going to be a disconnect, if you like, between uh, yourself and between my followers. They are going to have some sort of sense of what's right and wrong because I'm going to place it within them. And there is going to be a a challenge, a a battle, if you like, throughout time between yourself and the woman. I guess in the uh, primary sense it's talking about uh, Eve, but in a secondary and symbolic sense throughout Scripture it talks about the church. There's going to be that challenge between yourself and the church. And one of the greatest gifts that Ellen White gave the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the great controversy motif. The, the, The way in which we view the world and the universe and what's playing out before us day-to-day on the news. The idea of the great controversy was a gift to the church. And our understanding of the, 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 the story of Scripture in that context allows us to understand it in a very deep and meaningful way. Um, having established that there's enmity between you and the woman, we then get to trace throughout the Old Testament this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The descendants of Eve and Adam and the descendants of the followers of Satan. So then there, I guess, uh, exemplified in the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain. The descendants of Seth become the followers of Jesus and the descendants of Cain become the followers of Satan. And there is a uh, battle constantly as you see it played out throughout the scriptures between these two uh, descendants, if you like, followers of Satan and followers of Jesus. I guess if you look at, uh, at, at what we have now, 
You know, when, uh, when sin first entered the planet, God had a choice. Of course, he could have just wiped it out and start again. He could have said, well, that didn't work. Let me, let me, let me clean that up. Let me remove that and let me re, uh, re-engineer and restart the whole um, idea. But, of course, there would have been lingering, downs in the mind, lingering doubts in the minds of many, particularly the angels that hadn't fallen. And so God put in place a very transparent, consistent and open process to make sure that eventually everybody would be convinced that the law of love is a better governance system than the law of self. Because there there was a whole range of parties that needed convincing. First of all, of course, there was the angels in heaven who had been party to the whispering, the insinuating and the allurements of Satan. They'd heard them all. They'd chosen to maintain their allegiance with Jesus. Um, but they still needed, they still had some lingering doubts and they still needed convincing entirely that God's love was real and it was the best way to go. Of course, there was the angels of Satan who had believed his uh, insinuations and his doubts and they had followed him. They needed convincing that their choice was wrong. There was, of course, in human terms, the followers of Satan, the human uh, manifestation of what uh, Satan was um, bringing to them and of course the followers of Jesus. So eventually through a process of time God with perfect love, with perfect transparency, with perfect con- consistency wanted to ensure that all of these parties were convinced that his system was correct. Go back to Revelation 12 and we'll pick up the story back over there. Revelation 12 is a fantastic chapter because it's pivotal to the whole book of Revelation. What happens before it is sort of one section dealing with one uh, period of history. And then what happens after it, we'll, we'll talk about in just a little bit more detail later. But Revelation 12 is pivotal because it goes very quickly through a very long expanse of history, about 6,000 years. Let's go back to verse 1 of Revelation 12 now. Revelation 12 and verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman. Where did we see the woman just a little while ago? Back in Genesis chapter 3, we saw enmity between thee and the woman. And here we have the symbolism of a woman again. A woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet. On her head was a garland of 12 stars. Uh, Then being with child, she cried out in labour and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And so we get this uh, biblical symbolism and we get the symbolism of the woman representing the followers of Jesus, representing the church. And so the woman is there and then of course the uh, antagonist against the woman is there as well, that great fiery red dragon. But we get some more detail about that dragon. The detail is that it's got seven heads and ten horns. What are the seven heads and ten horns? Well, I guess scholars have uh, argued a little bit over that. But um, they, they don't argue over the fact that they are, um, I guess, uh, front men, if you like, or powers or governments, if you like, that through time have been the ones that have been carrying forward Satan's aims in the world. And so some of them say, well, you can't identify exactly what the seven heads are. Some of them list the seven heads. Uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome and the papal power. And so if you go down through history, you'll see essentially that those seven heads are carrying forward 
the history of the entire Old Testament and through the New Testament as well. So in those seven heads, you have an incredibly uh, microscopic description, if you like, of an incredible span of history. As these powers, remember in Egypt, uh, the Pharaoh said, who is this God that I should serve him? The birth of atheism in the, uh, in the, in the, in the nation of Egypt. You have uh, Syria, an incredibly cruel and heartless um, nation. And then you have, of course, the, the history outlined in the book of Daniel, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome. All front men, if you like, for the, uh, for the agenda of Satan throughout history. But then notice what happens, and I guess the, 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 the context of that, Revelation 12, verse 1 to 3, is the birth of Jesus. Finally, the birth of Jesus takes place, and in verse 4 it says, The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And so Satan particularly uses Herod in order to try and wipe out the seed. Now, if you look at the the progression of the seed of the woman throughout history, throughout Egypt, throughout Syria, throughout the biblical record, there were various points of time throughout that biblical record that the seed was almost extinguished. That it almost came down to one person just maintaining the, um, the, the transmission of the seed through until Jesus came. You can think of the time um, in, in Egypt with Joseph and, the, and the, his family. You can think of the time of uh, Esther uh, when the, the, the Jewish nation was almost wiped out. And you various other times where the seed was almost extinguished. But praise the Lord, the, uh, the, the seed uh, successfully gets carried down until Jesus is born. Um, and still there's efforts by Satan to wipe out the child. Uh, she bore the male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then, of course, we have the experience of Jesus. And we could spend so much time talking about the life of Jesus and the things that he achieved while he was here. We've talked about the seven-headed dragon. Jesus comes down from heaven. Do that again. Jesus comes down from heaven. He uh, lives his life. He dies his death. And then the Bible says that he was caught back up to heaven, but not before he paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Obviously, a key element in this whole story is the death of Jesus, without which there is no hope for the restoration of man. But I ask myself the question, if all Jesus came to do was just to die on the cross, couldn't he have come down as an adult on Tuesday and died on Friday and rose again on Sunday and gone back to heaven the next Tuesday? Couldn't he have done If that was the only purpose for which he came down, just to pay that penalty. But I like to think about the fact that he came as a helpless little baby that he came to identify with our sufferings and our needs, that he came to grow up the way that we grow up, that he came to feel temptation the way that we feel temptation, that he came to experience the life that we experience. And the Bible says that he came to be a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, in order that he could secure us, the Bible says, or help us or aid us to understand what it is that we go through. And so he came as a baby, uh, was born of a woman, and lived a life down here on earth in order to be our support and our example in all things. Then the Bible says he was caught back up into heaven 
And it is at that time, if we're still, sorry, in Revelation chapter 12, it's at that time, if you go now over to uh, verse 10, Revelation 12 and verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. There's another casting down here. Remember we read back in uh, verse 9 that there was a casting out of Satan. And we talked about the fact that at the, uh, well, after the battle in heaven, the Satan and his angels were cast down to earth. But here we have another casting down. And we have a time when salvation and strength have come. When would that be? After the cross. Salvation is now come and the accuser of the brethren, you remember a number of times in the Old Testament scriptures, you see Satan being an accuser of the brethren. It's right there in the book of Job um, and in various other places. And so this is the time when Satan has finally been banished forever from the courts of heaven and has finally been banished forever in the affections of the angels of heaven. Remember, there are four parties that need to be convinced, all those circled ones, that God's system is right. And up till this point, maybe the angels of heaven weren't entirely convinced. However, when they saw the cross, when they saw the hatred of Satan for Jesus, and when they saw the uh, complete love of Christ for all humanity manifest at the cross, no longer did they have any affection for Satan. They were fully convinced that Jesus' system of governance was correct. And so we can tick them off as fully convinced. Through the process of transparency and consistency and open heart, openness, God is working through consistently, ensuring that everybody has got an opportunity to choose for themselves what system of governance they will live under. Let's move on. As we go down to verse 12. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you that dwell in them. Why? Because Satan no longer has access there. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. Having been defeated at the cross, he now knows that his ultimate demise is secured. And that makes him more infuriated, more angry, and so it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because Satan now is endeavouring to bring as many down with him because he knows he's going down. Notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. Now, when the angel saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who's the woman? The church. He's now very, very angry with those who have chosen to align themselves to the governance of Jesus. So, persecuted the woman and he, and who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings like a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time times and half a time. And so we have a time period being introduced. I'll put it down here, 1,260 years. It's um, outlined in different places in Scripture, particularly Daniel and Revelation, as uh, 42 months or a time, times and half a time, or 1,260 days. Um, and we won't go through the time, with the, the time of uh, using Scripture to support the fact that that is a 1,260-year period, but there's plenty of scriptural evidence. 1260 years where there was special protection given to the woman uh, against the persecuting powers that Satan was aligning to himself. 
538 AD, 1798 AD is the, the passage of time where there was that special period of protection that was promised by the scriptures. And then it says in verse 17 that the dragon was enraged. Back in verse 13 it says that the dragon was... Oh, sorry, in verse uh, 12 it says that the dragon was, had great wrath. And now in verse 17 it says that the dragon was enraged. That suggests increasing anger. Um, for 1260 years he has been unsuccessful in wiping out entirely the seed of the woman and the ministry of the church. And so now there's an even more intensified period of rage where he's enraged with the woman and goes to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So after the 1260-year period, having been unsuccessful, Satan is even more angry. And he manifests manifests that anger in a very specific way that the Bible outlines. Now, if you're studying the book of Revelation, a very good sort of principle to keep in mind is that at the end of every chapter of the book, there is a question that's sort of lingering and unanswered. And then the next chapter of the book answers that question. And so if we come to the end of Revelation chapter 12, we see this verse at the end about the dragon being enraged. And we ask ourselves, well, what does that look like? What, 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 how, how does that manifest itself? How does the reality of that play out? We go to chapter 13 and it tells us. Revelation 13 verse 1. He talks about a beast rising out of the sea. So we've replaced here the, um, the seven-headed beast with this sea beast now because we're coming down further into history. It talks about a beast rising out of the sea. Once again, we haven't got the time to do the whole biblical definition, uh, derivation of support for the identity of this beast. We could continue to go through Revelation 13. We could go to Daniel chapter 7. And um, we won't do that this morning because of time. But we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church or the papal power uh, here in the first sea beast. Once again there you'll see in verse 5 that it talks about that that power was given authority to continue for 42 months. There's that time period, again, that 1260 years that we have already talked about. He then talks about in verse 11 that there is another beast. Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. And so we've got a sea beast and we've got an earth beast. And uh, let's call it the land beast, if you like. It comes out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. Symbolism in scripture, a lamb is often, um, uh, well, Christ, we'll have a look at that in, in just a minute, and someone, well, I guess, with Christ-like character. Um, and a dragon, as obviously we've seen, is that satanic-type character. And so this is a, 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 a kingdom, if you like, as a beast is a kingdom. This is a kingdom that has that sort of Christ-like character that starts to speak in a satanic way. Once again, we won't take the time to do the derivation of all the identifying characteristics of the beast. We could do that, but it's the United States of America. So, here we have in Revelation 13, the way that Satan uses these powers to be enraged with the world. Combination of the papal power and the United States of America. Therefore, I guess if we were to see how close we are to the closing scenes of Earth's history, we would watch how closely those two powers are aligned. Do you think they're becoming more friendly or less friendly? 
uh, it suggests they're becoming more and more friendly all the time. So, uh, it even talks about in verse 15 of Revelation 13 that this power, that is, United States of America, at the end of verse 15, will cause all that will not worship the image to the beast to be killed. He's talking about a death decree at some point. It talks about in in, uh, verse 17 that those will not be able to buy and sell except they have the mark or the name of the beast. And so this is talking about a great intensification of the persecution of Satan against the woman and against the church just prior to Jesus' coming. Now, if we've gone through Revelation 13, what's the lingering question at the end of Revelation 13 that's answered by Revelation 14? I suggest to you the lingering question is, well, what is God's response? If that's Satan's strategy, to have these global powers come together in persecution of his church, what is God's strategy? Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked and behold a lamb. And you sort of read that on the surface and think, we've got global superpowers against a lamb. But the lamb, of course, is a representation of Jesus. And of all the places where Jesus is described as a lamb, Revelation is the most prevalent. Many, many times through the book of Revelation you see Jesus as a lamb. And it says that this lamb is standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having the Father's name written on their foreheads. And it talks about, if we continue reading, the characteristics of those 144,000. Once again, that's a whole other sermon in itself. And uh, we're, we're trying to do the Bible in half an hour. So we won't drill down into that today. But the response of God to these threats of Satan is Jesus and three angels' messages. Revelation 14, verse 6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue and people. Final warning message. That's God's response. And the response is, and the message is wrapped up in the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation from sin, the good news that the uh, lack of allegiance to God that was manifested by Adam and Eve that's been plaguing us ever since has a solution. And that message needs to be preached in order for people to be warned and for people to be given an opportunity to make a decision where their allegiance is going to be. Because remember, God wants everyone to be given the opportunity in a transparent, open way to make their choice for which side of this equation they'll be on. And so we have the first angel's message, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Why a judgment? Because judgment is a transparent and open process. And we'll talk about that a little bit more shortly. That's the first angel's message. Uh, Second angel's message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Third angel's message, if anyone receives the beast in his image, receives the mark in his hand, they'll drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Um, In very, very short summary form, um, the message of the gospel is given. There's a very, very clear understanding given that Satan's system represented by Babylon is going to fail and that there'll be implications for staying on this side. That's the warning message to ensure that everyone's given an opportunity. It's a call to decision. It's an appeal, if you like, from God to planet Earth. I'm winding it up. Here's the final appeal. Here's the final message. Study it, understand it, make a decision, 
one way or the other. And then, of course, the next thing we have directly after that in Revelation 14 is the two reapings. The reaping of the earth through the grapes and the reaping of... Um, sorry, the reaping of the, uh, the, the wicked with the grapes and the reaping of the righteous with the wheat. And so... A lamb comes, the three angels' message is given, there's a judgment that's commenced in 1844, and that transparent process begins to ensure that at the end of the process, everybody is fully convinced. The second coming is then, as we already said, shown there at the end of Revelation chapter 14. Come with me now over to Revelation chapter 20, because then we have a look at what happens in heaven to continue this process of openness and transparency. Revelation chapter 20, it talks about in verse 2 that the angel that came down from heaven laid hold of the dragon, that character that we saw right at the front, right at the start, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the second coming happens, the followers of Jesus go to heaven, and we have Satan now bound for a period of a thousand years. Bound by the fact that he has no longer anybody to tempt. Because at the second coming, the followers of uh, Satan are wiped out by the brightness of his coming, the Bible says. The followers of Jesus go up to heaven, and so Satan is, remains here on earth with his angels, with nobody left to tempt. So therefore being bound by circumstances from doing the very thing that he likes to do. He's got a thousand years to contemplate um, the, the history that he has uh, been a part of, the, the carnage that he has wrought throughout the world and the results of his actions. He's also given an opportunity to um, recreate for himself what God created on planet Earth. Essentially, God says, look, this is the way that I found planet Earth, or this is the way that I created it. Here's an opportunity for you to do the same. But of course, he can't do it. Um, so, bound for a thousand years. What happens in heaven during the thousand years for the followers of Jesus? What does the Bible say? We're looking at verse 4 of Revelation 20. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment, there's that word again, judgment was committed to them. Here's a period where the records of heaven are open, once again in this transparent, open process that God uses to the followers of Jesus. And they give an opportunity to understand exactly why they are in heaven, why those people that thought should be in heaven aren't there and why people in heaven that they thought shouldn't be there are there. So they open the books and that loved one that they thought had made a decision for Christ, with sadness they can open the books and see why they didn't accept Jesus. For that person that they can see over there that they thought, really, I, I know that, I, I, I thought I knew that person, I thought I knew what they were involved in, how on earth are they in heaven here with me? And the third question, of course, is how did I make it? And we can take our crowns off our heads and throw them at the feet of Jesus in thankfulness and praise for the fact that the blood of Jesus has covered our sins. Um, and so by the end of that thousand years, having been exposed to every record in heaven, being able to get answers to every question that they might have, the followers of Jesus are fully convinced. And so now at this time you've got the, the angels in heaven fully convinced, you've got the followers of Jesus fully convinced because they've been able to get every doubt removed. The Bible says in uh, verse 21 
that at that point there was no longer any tears in their eyes. I'd suggest that maybe during this first thousand years there were some tears in heaven. As a result of reviewing those records and the sadness of seeing those that we love maybe not there. There, the Bible goes on in uh, verse 4. It says that they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years at the end of verse 4. And then in verse 7 it says that when the thousand years have expired, Satan is released from his prison. How is he released from his prison? By virtue of the fact that the followers of Satan are resurrected at the end of the thousand years. Um, and therefore Satan has opportunity to tempt once again. And the true, true character of Satan is manifest by the fact that even having been given a thousand years of contemplation regarding his actions, as soon as he has opportunity again, he does exactly the same thing. Once again, he endeavours to incite people in hatred toward God. What does it say there in verse 9? They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And uh, they, they, verse 10, the devil who deceived them, He's doing exactly the same thing that he did right at the start. He's continuing to deceive and to lie. He knows that, he's, he, knows that he is a defeated, uh, a defeated um, entity and yet he's deceiving those into thinking that they've got a chance. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Once again we have a judgment scene. We have a pre-advent judgment um, showing the reasons why those in heaven... Sorry, sorry showing uh, the, the transparency of God in those that are in heaven and those that are not. We have the, uh, the, the judgment in heaven where those in heaven are able to see the reasons and get their minds clear on why those that are in heaven are in heaven and those that are not are not. And then we get this other judgment now where those that are the followers of Satan now get opportunity to see the place in their life where they de- deviated from principle where they deviated from making a decision for God. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And if you read the, uh, the last couple of chapters of Great Controversy, you see this beautifully described about how they give an opportunity, a panorama, if you like, a, uh, a video, a DVD of their life and the points where they made decisions that took them down a path that took them away from Christ. And it's at that point that that scripture is fulfilled where it says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. It's at this point, having been given the opportunity to review their own record, that the followers of Satan at that point are fully convinced that the judgments of God are right. Come back to Revelation chapter 15, because there is a song there, we call it the song of Moses and the Lamb. Notice what this song says. It's a song that's sung by the redeemed, but it's a song that could be equally sung by the followers of Satan prior to their death. It says this, Great and marvellous are your works. I'm looking at Revelation 15 verse 3. Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. They could sing that song like the redeemed, because they're fully convinced that God's ways, that God's dealings, that God's method of dealing with the whole battle between good and evil, between love and self, has been transparent, it's been honest, it's been open, and it's been correct. It's been just and true, as they say. So the followers of Satan are fully convinced. 
Of course, the, uh, the angels at this time of Satan are also fully convinced. So therefore, we have a time in the universe where every party that needs convincing has been convinced. Therefore, God can rightly and justly destroy the wicked and purify the, and purify the universe. And that's what happens. The universe is then purified. It talks about the fire coming down from heaven and uh, the, the purification of the earth. And then the only thing that exists is heaven. Uh, the, uh, in fact, this planet becomes the new heaven and the new earth. That this planet that was the only rebellious planet, this planet that was the renegade planet, has become the centre now of the universe, built and forever existing on the principle of love only. And everyone at that point is a follower of Jesus and gives heartfelt, um, selfless uh, obedience to God. Interestingly, the only mark left in the universe of that whole battle is the prince in Jesus' hands and in his side. The only scar, the only reminder. And if we ever needed any reminding of the pain and the suffering and the, uh, the terrible outcome of sin throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, that's the only place we can go to see that record. It says at that time that there is no more, that, that all the tears are wiped from their eyes. And the original plan for planet Earth is finally achieved. And um, the, the governance of God continues forevermore. The question is, what decision are we making in that great controversy battle? It's very, very clearly laid out in Scripture, the two forces that are contending for your heart and your mind. And that great controversy, which we've just described in big panoramic detail, and that is manifested in the wars between nations and so on, takes place every day in the place of your heart. That great controversy battle is raged. You know it, you feel it, you sense it, that there is a, a challenge and a battle. But we've been given the blessing of the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the blessing of an understanding of the story of the great controversy battle. And we've only to choose to have God fight our battles with us and for us. I'm just going to pray and hopefully as, as we pray, you'll once again recommit yourself to the right side of that equation. Or if you've never done that, that for the first time, you'll give your allegiance to the winning team in the battle of the great controversy. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father in heaven, it's a grand story, it's, but thank you that you've told it to us so clearly and that we, have, we, can, we, we can have no doubt about what the end is. We can have no doubt who the, the winner in the battle is. That, Lord, we thank you and praise you that you deal with transparency and openness and honesty, that you want everybody of their own free will, a principle of love, to be fully convinced in their own heart and in their own mind of the decision that they make. Lord, thank you for your wisdom and your grace. Thank you that you came not only to die, but to be with us as a helper and an example and a powerful um, uh, guide for the life that we are to live. Lord, may we accept that, may we embrace it, may we, be, um, may we live our lives according to those principles. Lord, it says in your scriptures that there will be a, a people that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. May we all make those choices each day in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Is there anybody here that loves my Jesus? Anybody here that loves my Lord? I want to know, I want to know, do you love my Lord? Makes me feel so happy oh, when I love my Jesus. Makes me feel so happy oh, when I love my Lord. I want to know, I want to know, do you love my Lord? Tell it on the mountain oh, that you love my Jesus. Tell it in the valley oh, that you love my Lord. I want to know, I want to know, do you love my Lord? Is there anybody here that loves my Jesus? Anybody here that loves my Lord? I want to know, I want to know, do you love my Lord? Makes us love each other when we love my Jesus. Makes us love each other when we love my Lord. I want to know, I want to know, do you love my Lord? I want to know, I want to know. You've been listening to Is There Anybody Here? Brought to you by Calis Bell Adventist Quartet. We hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Following their persecution in the lower valleys, the Waldensians who moved up here into the higher valleys did not do so to live life as hermits. Number one, they fled persecution, but once they got here, they tried to establish as normal a life as possible. And normal for them was training missionaries and training their young people in how to study and how to teach the Bible. This here, the College of the Barbs, stands today as just one example of what would have been numerous schools that would have been spread all over the valleys where they would teach and train their young people to be missionaries throughout Europe. Here in the College of the Barbs is a Bible copy table. 
a place where the students would have painstakingly, by hand, written the Bible out from beginning to end. You see, the Bible was very important to the Waldensians. They had it in their own language. It formed a basis for congregational worship. There was also societies of young people that would meet together and would commit large parts of the Bible to memory. After studying here in the colleges in the valleys, the students would be sent out to many of the great universities around Europe. We know that some of the countries that they went to were England, Scotland, France, Spain, Germany, the Czech Republic, Poland, Lithuania, Bulgaria, and Croatia. And as they went out as students, they would study whether to be a doctor, a nurse, whether it was to be a lawyer. They would study various subjects, but their main purpose of going there was to be an undercover missionary. They would take the Bible with them. They would also send some missionaries out who would just go out as workers. They may be traveling craftsmen or traveling artisans and tradesmen. And they would also take the Bible with them. And they would move and travel through different parts of Europe. They couldn't have the Bible, it was illegal. And so they would take their coat and they would unstitch the seam of their coat. And then just inside the two layers of the coat, they would put a few pages of the Bible. And they would travel with just a few pages of the Bible, not a whole copy. And when they found someone that they thought was maybe interested in the gospel, they would take the Bible out of the stitches of their coat and share the truths of God's word with them. You know, maybe you're working today in a doctor's office. Maybe you're working as a nurse in a hospital. Maybe you're a teacher in a school, or maybe you're a lawyer in some law firm. You are not there simply to collect a paycheck to pay the bills. You are there as a missionary. God has put you there for a specific purpose. There may be someone in your workplace that God knows only you can reach. As students as well, the first reason why they went to study was not to get the best degree, but it was to be a missionary in the great universities in Europe. You today may be a missionary in a great institution. You are not there just for academic excellence. You are there also to seek and find people that you can share the gospel with. And the other thing we learned from the Waldensians is how important the Bible was to them. If they would take just a few pages and put it in their coats and then share it with other people, how much more should we commit the Bible to memory? How much more should we commit the Bible to study that we would know God's word and be able to share it wherever we are? They stand today, these Waldensians, as an inspiration to us. And may it inspire us for service, may it inspire us for study wherever we are. Episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Quenching the Fires of Heart Disease Summer was the busiest and best season for Ken, the owner of a small engine repair shop. But Ken's long hours and hectic schedule were interrupted permanently. At age 46, overweight and a smoker, Ken's first symptom of heart trouble was his last. 
He fell victim to a sudden, fatal heart attack. Ken had been sure he was fine. He had never had chest pain or shortness of breath. Ken's story is not uncommon. Although heart attacks occur when arteries become narrowed by cholesterol, this occurs less than 30% of the time. Instead, most heart attacks and many strokes originate from small but unstable fatty deposits in the arteries called plaques. When they rupture, they release deadly compounds that can produce life-threatening clots. Although arteries have often been compared to ordinary plumbing pipes, these vessels are much more complex than simple pipes. Arteries are living tissues that contain powerful chemicals involved in immune function, inflammation, clotting, and more. The most common disease of these living tissues is atherosclerosis. But actually, there is much more involved than hardening of the arteries. Atherosclerosis also involves a mushy fat component. In fact, the process begins when fats, such as cholesterol, move from the blood into the lining of the blood vessels. These fatty deposits are part of an inflammation process which causes a greater risk for heart attacks and stroke. When working correctly, acute or short-term inflammation causes the body's immune system to heal when injuries have occurred. But chronic, long-term overactivation of the immune system can cause serious problems. Such is the case in diseases such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and asthma. It is also true in atherosclerosis. Inflammation literally means on fire. Indeed, scientists now realize that chronic inflammation is a major, if not the major, culprit in coronary artery disease. It underlies not only the creation of fatty plaques, but also their growth and rupture. Is there anything we can do to dampen the fires of inflammation in our bodies? Fortunately for our arteries, the answer is yes. Lifestyle choices have a major effect on the inflammation process involved in heart disease. Here are a few timely tips for keeping your ticker in top shape, reducing inflammation and sudden heart attack risk while improving heart health naturally. First, stop the smokes. Smoking as few as two cigarettes a day significantly increases inflammation throughout your body. Smoking robs your heart of oxygen. Quitting dramatically reduces your risk of heart attack. Second, ditch the drinks and enjoy water. Sugary drinks fuel belly fat, which stokes the fires of inflammation linked not only with heart disease, but also diabetes, obesity, and certain cancers. This is because the fat carried around in our bellies is metabolically active, producing chemicals that heighten inflammation throughout the body. The top source of added sugar in the United States population is sweetened drinks. Losing even small amounts of excess weight reduces heart attack, cancer, and diabetes risk. Ditch sugary drinks and enjoy fresh, pure water and soothing herbal teas. Aim for 8 to 10 cups of water each day. Third, shop defensively. The produce department has been called the Department of Defense when it comes to disease prevention. Spend more time shopping in the fruit and vegetable aisles and fill up your cart and your body with these foods to dramatically lower inflammation throughout your body. 
In general, animal products tend to fan the flames of inflammation, while plant foods dampen them. Increase omega-3 fats with mineral-rich walnuts, chia, or ground flaxseed. Fourth, get in D sun. Low levels of vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin, are connected with increased risk of heart disease. Enjoy outdoor time in the sun responsibly. You may need to supplement with vitamin D. Fifth, move it and lose it. Lack of physical exercise is second only to smoking as a risk factor for heart disease. Daily exercise is linked to lower cholesterol levels, improved blood pressure, better diabetes control, improved mood and sleep, and fewer joint problems. Sixth, stack those Zs. Lack of sleep increases heart attack risk. Tone down the intensity of evening activities. Avoid caffeine, alcohol, and heavy meals at night, and your sleep quality will improve. Guard your bedtime. It's healing time. Seventh, watch your mouth. Gum diseases which cause inflammation are linked with bacterial infections that can contribute to heart disease. Also, heart disease, obesity, and diabetes increase the risk for gum problems. Daily flossing and brushing, avoidance of soda pop, and enjoying a diet rich in plant foods helps your mouth as well as your heart. Eighth, mind your matters. Scientists have found a compelling link between stress and inflammation. Although we can't always control the things that come at us, we can often learn better ways to cope. Take time to unwind by spending more time with friends and family. Trim that schedule and add daily time with God in Bible study and prayer. God cares about your heart. God speaks of the heart as more than an organ that pumps blood. The Bible uses the heart to represent the springboard of our actions and the seed of our emotions. Give me your heart and let your eyes take delight in my ways. Proverbs 23:26. Would you allow Jesus Christ, the God of all healing, comfort, and love, to help you form new habits and renew your inner life? You can start today, one choice at a time, and gain more optimal health while losing needless suffering. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.